M A I N M E N U Main Menu Main Menu Welcome to Main Menu for September 5th, 2009. I am Jamie Pauls. This week we begin with a short review of the Samsung Renown from a member of the Blind Users Verizon Phones email list. Then we continue with part 3 of our Windowized scripting class. That's all coming up on this edition of Main Menu. Hello everyone. I would like to offer a brief demonstration of the Samsung U810 mobile phone from Verizon Wireless, otherwise known as the Samsung Renown. I will briefly describe the phone and demonstrate its voice capabilities. And I apologize for any New York City traffic and other noises that may enter into the recording because I do not have any way to completely avoid them. This phone is less sophisticated than, for example, the ENV2. The ENV2 has a typewriter style keyboard on the inside of the phone. The Renown phone does not have it. The Renown only has a keypad which is used to enter phone numbers or to enter text into your text messages or names to your contacts, etc. This is a flip phone and when the flip is closed and you place the phone with the flip facing you on the side opposite to the flip you'll find the camera lens and to the touch it seems like there is nothing else on that side of the phone however there are three keys there that are supposed to control the music player and that is the rewind, play, and fast-forward keys. However, they're not quite distinguishable by touch. They're more, um, probably more touchscreen type keys. There are a few keys on the sides of the phone. Before you actually open the flip and explore the keypad, the keys on the left side are the volume keys, volume up and volume down. And above them is the port for the charger. And that port is protected by a plastic guard. You need to turn that guard uh, lift it and turn it to expose the charger port. On the right side of the phone, there are two other side keys. And one of them is the camera key, and uh, below it is 
the hold key. If you press that hold key, it is supposed to lock the music player keys, the ones that I described earlier. When you open the phone, on the top, you will find the left soft key and the, the right is the right soft key. Between them is the outline for the directional keys that are located a little lower. On the next row, you will find right below the left soft key is the voice command key. And then you will find a circle outlined by dots. And that circle is the directional keys, your up, down, left and right key. And each key is outlined by a dot. In the center of that, of that circle is the OK key. Pressing that will select your menu options and also it will start the menu selection. When you press the OK key from the home screen, it will start the menus. To the right of those directional keys is the speakerphone key. Pressing and holding it will either turn off or turn on the speakerphone. The row below it is the send, the clear, and the end key. And below it is the regular alphanumeric keypad. Each key is outlined on all or almost all sides, which makes the key look like a square box with the borders on all or most sides. The keys are not textured, they don't look like keys on your regular home phone, but to me they're quite distinguishable because of the outlining. The phone will not speak to its capability, to its best capability, right out of the box. It needs to be set up. When I press the OK key to start the menus, I will hear one media center. One media center and then pressing down arrow will scroll through the main menu options. Two messaging. And we're back to Media Center. Now, most of the choices will only speak this first menu selection. And the following menu selection, if 
that menu selection is not either totally visual or maybe disabled on your phone. For example, if I enter into mobile IM and instant messaging is not on my plan, if I enter into that menu option, I will not hear any submenus. But in Media Center, if I enter into this one, press OK key. Media Center, one, music and tones. Two, picture and video. came back to the menu option music and tones again. If I get into music and tones, press OK key. Music and tones. One, the cast music vertical bracket drop city. Two, get nearing tones. Three, wiring tones. If I enter into, for example, my ringtones, I will not hear any choices. But the first choice is get new ringtones. So in order to actually hear the first ringtone, I will have to press the, uh, the down arrow key and then pressing the OK key will play the ringtone. But in this option, in the media center, the phone will read into the third level of submenus. The same about settings and tools. If the menus are more outlined and more detailed, it will read into the submenus. If the menu is more visual or disabled because it is not on my plan, it will not read once entered. Now, it is not very good in navigating the contacts list. The best way to use the contacts is through the voice command key. Now, the voice command key, pressing that key will enable the voice command menu, which is different from the regular menus. And call is the first option, but since I pressed the down arrow key, the first thing you heard was send. So now I'm going to call up contacts and call NFB Newsline, for example. Call Newsline. Did you say call Newsline? Yes. Home. Calling. 
para continuar en español aprieta los NFT Newsline is provided by the National Federation of the Blind along with state sponsors. That is how this phone sounds on speaker. I put it on speaker on purpose so that you'll be able to hear how it sounds on the call. And this is a brief description of the Samsung Renown mobile phone with speech capability. I hope those of you who have gotten this phone or are thinking or are thinking about getting it will find this demonstration a little helpful. And um, just out of habit, I'm going to put open closed parentheses. You don't necessarily have to do that, but it's just a habit I get into. So now that's the opening of our subroutine. Now we have to close our subroutine. Everything in VBScript has a beginning and an end. Every function, uh, you declare a function, you end a function. You start a for loop, you end a for loop. You start an if, you end an if. <clears throat> the same goes for subroutines as well. So on the line after my speak hello world, I'm going to type a blank line. <clears throat> then you end a sub by typing end sub. So end space sub. So now, my speak hello world, instead of being a simple line that executes when the script gets called, now it's inside of a subroutine. So if I were to save this script and run it now, nothing would happen because nothing is calling that subroutine. So what I want to do is I want to set up a hotkey to call that subroutine. And we're going to do that by using the registered hotkey method of the keyboard object. The registered hotkey method of the keyboard object actually returns a registered key object. And what we have to do is we have to store that registered key object so that um, we can continue to press it as many times as we want. If we just registered the hotkey without storing it into a variable, it would register it and then it would go away and it, you'd never be able to use it again. So in order to store a, an object in VBScript, we have to use the set statement. So I'm going to type on a blank line after my end sub, I'm going to type the word set and then a space. This means I'm about to set a variable, I'm about to create a variable that's going to contain an object. I'm going to call that uh, variable my hotkey. So I've got set space my hotkey. Now I'm going to put something into that variable my hotkey, and that is going to be the register key object that comes from the register hotkey method. So I'm going to do my equal sign. <coughs> We're dealing with the keyboard object, so I'm going to type keyboard. And again, we're dealing with the register hockey method of the keyboard object, so I'm going to type my dot separator, my period. I'm going to type the name of the method, which is register hockey. So I'm setting my hockey equal to the, res the, the result of this registered hockey, register hockey method. And now I'm going to add my parameters by uh, putting an open parenthesis. And the first parameter I know from reading the documentation is a string that indicates what hotkey I want to set up. So I'm going to start that with a quote. And then I'm going to type out the name of the hotkey that I want. The way Windowize does this is really nice because it actually, I can actually type out the names of the keys. I want to do a control shift one. So I'm going to type control, type it out, C-O-N-T-R-O-L. 
and then a dash, and then shift, and then a dash, and then the number one. And then I'm going to close that string with a closing quote. So that's the first parameter of my register hockey method, a string that says control dash shift dash one. That's the key that Windowize is going to assign uh, our second parameter to. So to add our second parameter, I'm going to type a comma to indicate that we're adding a second parameter. And now I'm going to type the name of my function that I created. The name does have to be a string, so I'm going to open that uh, with an open quote. And I called my sub my sub, so I'm just going to type that here, M-Y-S-U-B. And then I'll close that string with a close quote, close my parameters with the right uh, parenthesis. And now what I'm doing is I'm setting my hotkey to the result of the register hotkey method using Control shift one to call my sub. So I'm going to save this with Control s I'm going to close notepad. I'm going to run notepad again. When you hear this time a notepad ran, all you heard was untitled notepad. And you get an edit box. You didn't hear anything about hello world. That's because we're no longer just speaking hello world, but we've actually set it up to execute whenever we press a hotkey. The hotkey is control shift one, so I'm going to do that now. Control shift one. And we get hello world. I can continue to press it. So that is how we add functionality to a hotkey in a script. And we can also, um, an interesting thing about this is we can kind of look at some scope of how the script is working. We didn't specifically say where this hotkey should be uh, executed. So even though we have Notepad up right now, we're doing a control shift one and we're hearing uh, hello world, I can actually minimize everything by doing Windows key D it focuses the desktop, so notepad is running, but it's off in the background somewhere. I can still do control shift one at this point, <laughs> and I can hear hello world. I can hear that actually absolutely anywhere, because we didn't put any kind of uh, any kind of restrictions on where hello world should be spoken. Only that it should be spoken whenever you do a control shift one. What's that? Well, see, I made a I made a mistake when I was editing my uh, when I was entering my script, and so now whenever I try to go back in there to edit the script, it reloads with a mistake, which triggers another runtime error. <laughs> but you can just say stop script. Unload the thing. You can just say stop. Uh, you should get an error dialog, and one of them is stop script. And you can just say hit that, and then you would be in Notepad without the script running. Now, what is the path again where you save the scripts? You save it to, um, it's uh, percent app data percent, which is an environment variable that uh, references the application data. You could type, you know, c colon backslash documents and settings backslash your username backslash application data. You could type all that out if you want to, but percent app data percent is just kind of a shorthand way to reference that particular application data directory. So once you have percent app data percent, you then do backslash GW space micro, because we're in the GW micro folder. Mm -hmm. Another backslash window dash eyes, because we're then in the window eyes folder of the GW micro folder. And then another backslash users, to get us into the users folder. Another backslash default, because we're working in the default profile. And then another backslash, and then the name of your script, which is, in our case, hello world. Is the name of the keyword object just keyword? So you're just typing out that enormously long path, we're just using that percent app data percent to kind of give us some shorthand to, so we don't have to type as much.
Can you read the, I think Brian and I got the exact same error. Okay. What's What should the last line be? I have set my hotkey equal keyboard dot register hotkey, left paren, quote, control dash shift dash one, end quote, right paren, comma, space, left paren, myself, oh, right paren. I don't know what I did a minute ago, but it works now. Uh, the, um, you should have uh, only one set of parentheses. Uh, right parenthesis around the beginning of your parameters. I'm sorry, a left parenthesis around the beginning of your parameters and a right parenthesis around the end of your parameters. And the parameters are only separated by a comma. So if you if you know the this variable, the, the my hotkey, if you know that, that takes the key binding out of scope then, so. It does, there's actually two ways that you can do that. The register key object that gets returned from the register hotkey method has its own method called um, something. <laughs> it's called an unregister un or something similar to that, which would take that object and it would it would dereference it and it would cease to exist. You could also do set variable equals nothing. Nothing is a keyword of VBScript that's, that's like a null. It means an object that doesn't exist. So you can set it to nothing and that would also get rid of it. So you could do it either way. Or like you said, it loses scope. So if you do it in a function and you define it in that function and that function goes away and, or ends, then poof, it's gone. <coughs> And you have to be careful you use separate variables because a lot of times if you have multiple hotkeys in a script, I would do this, I was testing one, so I'd copy the register hotkey line and paste it in and, and, and just change the hotkey and the function it calls, but I'd set it to the same variable. <laughs> so of course the first variable got lost, so I would only ever have my second hotkey because I've uh, the first one lost its scope and then I reset it to the second time, so I'd only have my second hotkey. Well, I think scope for hotkeys is a very useful feature. We, do, we currently have to do a lot of tricks to pull that off. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Now, and obviously this is a very simple script, and he's hard-coded that hotkey in there so the user can't change it without going into the VBS script, but there are ways you can do that to make it much easier so that it's not hard-coded in the script itself. But, and we'll, we'll show some examples of that as we go on. Um, I'm trying to find, okay. Uh, we just want to kind of go over a couple other things. So since you have this script now running, um, ultimately, and I think you take back over and packaging it. Uh, and then we'll show you how you can take this script and you can package it and make a WPM. But before we do that, I just wanted to kind of talk about a couple other options that you have at this point. You've created this wonderful script. You spent hours and hours and hours working on this. And you don't necessarily want to just give it away to, the, to everybody. You don't. Now, we encourage people to provide the source code to the script, but we fully understand that that's not always to your best interest to do that at times, especially if you charge for your script. And within your script, you've hard-coded it to the user serial number. And, and all you have to do is go into the VBS and find the serial number and put yours in and it starts running for yours. So you don't want to just give them always the source code to this. Um, as I mentioned before, we give you the option of being able to encrypt your script. So if you were to select the advanced options uh, menu options uh, from the global menu, you can say you want advanced menus. Then magically under the manage sets and scripts pull down, you're going to see some extra options, which you're going to have to do pretty soon to be able to do the package manager. But one of those options is encrypt script. And that will take any file that you provide uh, per, typically, you'd only need to do this for text file type formats. So .vbs, .js, or whatever. If it's C++, you're giving them an exe anyway. It doesn't need to be encrypted. It's already encrypted because it's compiled. Um, but if you give them this VBS and you don't want them to see the source code, you could select off of the Manage Sets and Script pulldown, which I'm in. Let me Sets and scripts and scripting. And I go down to... Encrypt scripts. See dialog. So encrypt scripts. If I hit enter here, it again opens up the standard open dialog, the Windows open dialog allows me to type in the path of any file that I want, and I would do hello world.vbs, I would give it the path to that. 
hit enter, and that will then automatically encrypt that file, and it will give it an, um, an extension of .wecrypt.wsf. So I would see hello world.vbs.wecrypt.wsf. And um, the reason that we actually made it a .wsf file at the end is because we also wanted the ability to be able to sign an encrypted script. The signing certificates require formats that it understands. It understands VBS, it understands EXE, or uh, EXE, but it didn't understand .wecrypt. <laughs> doesn't know what that is. So, and it doesn't know our encryption. So we made it into a .ws format so that you could then provide a, um, a certificate or, or actually sign your particular script even though it's encrypted. So that's why we added the .wsf extension, which is a valid extension. We just made sure it's in the correct format for that to actually work. But that's a great way to be able to encrypt that script. They cannot see the source code. It's a highly encrypted mechanism, and we're paranoid about that. We, For instance, we, Windowize is the only one that knows how to decrypt that file. And before it sends it off to the scripting host, like vbscript.dll, we have to decrypt it, and we then pass it off to VBScript. We're so paranoid that we actually run through and make sure that VBScript.dll is a uh, certified, registered, using a valid Microsoft certificate, that it's validly signed or signed with a, a valid certificate. Once we validate that it is a valid certificate, then we pass it on to the DLL. So somebody did, didn't create a VBS.dll so that it could get the encrypted, the unencrypted version of your script. So we take security very, very seriously as we do that. So then Aaron's going to go through then and take, take it on of how you can actually take your VBS, create a WPM file so the user can just install it. They don't have to go through the load process. They don't have to type percent app data, whatever. They just install the WPM. So all right, now that you've done all the hard work, what we're going to do is we're going to close out uh, our script. If you've got it open, go ahead and close Notepad. If you're in the script manager, go ahead and get out. What we're going to do first is we're going to go into window eyes and we're going to set the menu level um, to advanced rather than beginner because packaging scripts is something that we have under the advanced menu level. Um, you can do that in the window eyes control panel if you do an Alt L for global. All right, so if you, uh, the first option on the global menu, or only option in the beginner level, is menu level. And it's set to beginner, so we press enter on that. That'll bring up a list box where we can select the different menu levels, arrow down twice to advanced, hit enter. And now we'll have all kinds of options in our menu. So we'll go back to the file menu with Alt-F, type an M for manage sets and scripts. And then we're going to either arrow down to package manager and press enter, or just type the letter P. So this takes us into the package manager dialog. There are three buttons in this dialog, create new package, modify existing package, or cancel. We're obviously interested in creating a new package from this fancy new script that we wrote. So we're going to hit enter on create new package. And this brings up the package manager. This is where you're going to add scripts. Um, you're going to uh, put in your version number, put in uh, package information, license information, specify languages, all the things that you want to set up to, in order to distribute your script. This is where you're going to do it in the package manager. So I'm using a version that's a little bit later than the one you're using, so there's uh, a couple more options in here that you don't have. But um, if we tap into this dialog, what we want to do is uh, get to the... Um, well, what we're first interested in is, is adding our files to the package. So we do that by using the Add Files button, which is Alt-A. So I'm going to do an Alt-A. 
And again, since this is Window Eyes, it knows where the user's default directory is, so it's going to pop me right in there. My hello world.bbs is in this directory, so I'm going to type that in hello world.bbs. And now I've added the hello world.bbs to my files to package list box. Um, and uh, I can continue to add uh, files here. Like Doug was talking about, the progress indicator script has the, uh, the single script file. There's also some supporting files, like an XML file and a number of WAV files. And I can add all the files I want to one single package by using the add files. I can either specify one file, I could add a bunch at once if I wanted to. So now we have one file listed in our files to package. That's our hello world.bbs. When we created this, we noticed that we associated it with Notepad. It wasn't a global script because we wanted it to actually run every time that Notepad ran. So if we select the hello world.bbs in our files to package list, then we hit tab. There's an associate globally button. What this does is it's going to uh, set up the package to actually take the script that we're installing and associate it however we want it associated on the new uh, machine where it's being installed. We don't want to associate globally, globally because we want to associate it with a specific application. So we're going to tab once more. Associate with application. Now we have associate with application. That's what we want because we want to associate it with Notepad. So I'm going to press enter. The window eyes is asking me for a WE file. If you're familiar with Windows set files, you know that when you create a set file, a .we file is created automatically so that Windows knows what sets to load for what application. The scripts are handled the kind of the same way. Uh, we give it a .we file, Windows knows to use uh, that particular application to load particular scripts. So we're interested in Notepad because that's the application we want to associate our script to. So we're going to type in Notepad.we. We're going to hit enter. And now in our associate with list, we have notepad.we. So we have our hello world.bbs associated with an application. That application is notepad.we. So now this package, when it gets created, is going to automatically install the hello world BBS and associate it with notepad when, it's, when the package is run. So we're going to tab on through this dialog. You'll notice we have a package information edit box. This is where you can enter information um, that the user might need to know before they install your package, before they install your script. A lot of times the GW Micro scripts will indicate that the script about to be installed requires the GW Toolkit. So if the user doesn't have that, they can, and it gives them a web address, they can go to the website, download the toolkit, make sure that they have it before they run this particular package that requires that script. You can put any kind of information you want in package information. We tab again, we also have a license information uh, edit box. So if there's a particular license that uh, you write your scripts under, whether that be an open license, a closed license, whatever you want, you can enter that license information here. And if the license information is blank, the user's never prompted that when they go to install the package. It just goes on. If there is license information there, the user, it will be displayed to the user. There's also an option in here to require the user to actually accept the license before they can actually install the script. So. Those are some different ways that you can protect not only yourself as a script author, but also them as script users by supplying specific license information. Um, just so you know, in our scripts too, we use what license? The open? Uh, we use the OpenBSD license. Yeah. So it's completely open. You're free to distribute. You're free to modify. You can do whatever you want with our scripts. The only thing we require is you include a copy of that license. Leave that license intact when you distribute the scripts. Does it do other dependency checking besides uh your GW toolkit. 
and there seem to be so many like uh, simultaneous scripts that could be running to add different functionality to a to an application. Well, can I can I uh, make my package require some other package? You can't make it require another package. That's really where package information is helpful because you can you can tell the user you need this script, so you need to have this done. This is basically a kind of a pre-install thing where the user would read through it and say, "Okay, I need to have this. I need to have this. I need to have this environment. I need to have this installed." It's just a way to do it. There's no an easy way, I don't think, for the package manager to actually go check for those dependencies because there are so many different dependencies that a script could have. I'm thinking of. Uh, of the uh, we, uh, we for JavaScript, uh, it knows the uh, different versions of Java that supports and things like that. That's all up to that script to handle the package. You know, that's kind of beyond the scope of what the package manager can do. So we provide the package information so that you can let the user know what kind of things they'll need. But I think it's actually up to the script itself to check for those environments. So your script would run and say, "I'm sorry, we can't continue because you don't have one installed." So your script would take care of that. The package manager's job is to really get the script installed. Mm -hmm. And um, it will check if you, uh, if you have a version of the script already installed, it will notify you um, if it finds a file with the same name or things like that. So it does the basic kinds of, uh, of, uh, of checking for things like that. Did you have a question, Jerry? Which, um, so, so in Package Manager, there's a version number, but we specified that in the script. So which one takes precedence, the Package Manager or the one specified within the script? The Package Manager version number is used in the Add Remove Packages dialog. So when you add a package, when you go into add and remove packages, you'll see hello world 1.0. The version number that I actually put in my script is what shows up in the script manager dialog. I'm with you. They should be the same. You could modify it so that they're not, but that would confuse your users and they wouldn't well, run your script. You have to get an extra WAV file or something and make your package version number different than your script version number, I would suppose. Yeah, typically I try to make them the same just to minimize confusion. The reason you'd want to keep them the same too is that, especially with 7.1, if you go to add removes, there's an update option. That goes by the date of the package, I mean the version of the package manager. If you go into the options of the script and say check for updates, that goes by the script version for checking for updates. So it's a good idea to keep them the same. But the, we can't show the script version in add remove packages because the script has to be running for us to see the version. So that's why you require it to be typed in for the package manager. Uh, if we tap, continue tapping on this dialog, we'll find another checkbox that says require shutdown of all scripts before installation. Um, if your script um, does rely on other scripts that are running um, and you want to make sure there are no conflicts. that others are dependent upon, then you would, uh, the toolkit is a, a perfect example of this. The toolkit provides a number of shared objects that several scripts rely on. If you update the toolkit, you want to be able to make sure that the scripts that rely on the toolkit um, are restarted so that they get the new copy of these objects that, to, that, the, that the toolkit provides. So uh, if you had such a script like the toolkit, you would check this checkbox and it would automatically take care of shutting down all the scripts, installing the new version of the toolkit, and then restarting all of the scripts. And then there are some other um, uh, language combo boxes in here where you can specify a language of a script. If it's been localized in different languages, you can supply uh, package information and license information specific to those languages. So um, uh, several of our scripts are localized in many different languages, of Polish, for example. So in the package manager, I can select the English localized language, provide all my package information and my license information in English. I can then switch over to Polish, the package information and license information edit boxes would clear out. 
I could then enter the Polish text on those edit boxes. And that, if I swapped back and forth between English and Polish, I would see the package information and license information change depending on which language I had selected. So we're not uh, really concerned with any of that. We just want to get our script installed and get it associated with Notepad. So we're going to tab over to the Create Package button. Create package. And now it's prompting me to save my package. If you tab once to the save as type combo box. The type is Windowize Package Files WEPM. Um, it's going to suggest hello world because that's the first uh, file name that's listed in my files to package uh, lists. And that's fine with me. I'm going to create a hello world.wepm. So I'm just going to hit enter. Uh, again, since this is Windowize, it already remembers the user default folder. So I'm just going to hit enter. Package created. Package created. If I looked at my user's default folder now, I would have a hello world.wepm. So you've just created your first script. You've just created your first script package. So now what we want to do is we want to actually go through what the user would experience when installing your package. So to do that, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to go back into the script manager. Actually, we need to make sure that Notepad is the active application first. Uh, then we'll go into Windowize, go into the script manager. So we have our hello world.vbs that we created before. This is well, the one we created during our, our testing and development cycle. Now we will actually want to unload that because we're going to install it using the package we've just created. So with the hello world VBS selected, I'm just going to hit the delete key. It's going to prompt me. Are you sure you want to unload hello world VBS? I am. I'm going to have why. So now my list is blank for Notepad. I have no scripts associated with Notepad, which is great because I'm going to install it using the package I just created. So I'm going to get out of all this. I'm going to go into the Windowize file menu. I'm going to go into Manage Sets and Scripts. And I'm going to go down to Add and Remove Packages and press on. And this is where you have the Add, Remove, the Close, things like that. So I'm going to do. I'm going to install a new package. So I'm going to do an Alt A for Add. Windowize remembers the default folder, so I can just type in Hello World.wepm. And it's going to tell me that I already have a hello world.vbs. This is some of that preliminary file checking it does. So it will, if, it are, if you already have a script that has the same name, you'll at least get a warning saying you already have that. Um, I'm going to pretend like I didn't have it, so I'm going to say yes to overwrite it. A user would not have that on the Right. And it says script installed. And now in my install packages, I now have hello world as the name, the version number. I didn't put one in, so it happens to be empty. It tells me the uh, install date. So now that my script is installed, I should be able to launch Notepad and use my hotkey to have it speak hello world. So I'm going to launch Notepad. I'm going to hit my hotkey, which is Control shift one So the package was installed successfully because now when I run Notepad, my hotkey is working. And I can verify that by going back into the, uh, the script manager. And with the application radio button selected, I see Notepad as the active application. Then I see my script that I came up with. Hello world.bbs versions 1.0. Description, this is a test description. My help and options button is enabled. Is enabled. Everything that I did in my script is now just like it was when I was running it myself, but we actually created a package with it, installed the package. And now I can sign this package if I wanted to. I can upload this package to Script Central so that anyone can download it. Um, I can modify this package if I go back into the admin, uh, um, 
package manager, remember we had to create new package, we had modify package. So I could modify this package, I could add more script files, I could change the version number, I can change package information, license information, repackage everything, and then uh, that's something else I could upload to Script Central under a new version and so on and so forth. So the package manager really gives you a really nice way to take all the work you've done, put it in one nice single file, and pass that along to users. And you could also, we could have gone into the user's default folder, selected the hello world.wpm, and pressed enter on it, and it would have launched the add uh, remove packages dialog automatically because the WPMs are associated with window eyes. <coughs> so congratulations, you created your first script, your first script package. You're well on your way. Now will this work just as well in uh, Vista? Um, in other words, uh, the we could use Vista. Absolutely, yeah. My system is Vista. So. Is there a manual you'd recommend, or say you want to start to learn uh, Visual Basic, is there a, do you have a good reference for a book you could yeah. get started in? Well, off of Script Central. If you go to Script Central, there's a developer link there. And if you go to that, there's um, a couple other links, but one of them is uh, resources, and one of those will take you to VB Script user manual, the reference manual, all that type of thing. So you can get that. Yeah, because uh, I didn't realize how easy these scripts were uh, right. I mean, just write them in Notepad. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very, very simple. And once you learn, I mean, there's, the syntax of VBScript is, is not large at all. It's, it's just pretty small. So once you learn those few things, the for loops and, you know, whatever kind of looping mechanisms you want, and how to, you know, when you're setting a variable equal to something, if you're setting it to an object, you got to use the word set, otherwise you don't, and those little quirky things then you can just start screaming with these scripts. And the object-oriented design that we have makes it so simple to be able to look up stuff. And we'll show you the manual here quickly of the, the scripting manual itself of how it's organized, and it just makes sense. It's not one big honking list in alphabetical order of all the functions that, that you know, don't necessarily, the previous one doesn't really mean anything with the next one, it just happens to be alphabetical. So where object-oriented, you look at the object and then you can open it up, you'll see all the properties, you'll see all the methods, you'll see all the events and different nodes of a tree view and you can open those up and see them and that type of thing. And where do you get Notepad++? Uh, Google. <laughs> okay. It's free? Yeah, it's free. The only thing about Notepad++ that is not good accessibility-wise is uh, they use highlighting. I think you can disable it, but like comments would be green, and they use different colors for different things within your document, which is great visually. Yeah. But when you go to select it, then your selection changes. If you're selecting a comment, then it's something on green. If you're selecting a non-comment, it's whatever. And so Windows gets confused on what's selected because of all the different colors that are being used to use it. But I think you can disable that. You can disable well, that. Y'all haven't, haven't written Notepad++ scripts right now? Well, you could, but there's so many <laughs> other editors you can use that, that don't have them. Actually, Notepad++ actually has a comm interface where you could do a lot of Oh, there you things. go. So the comm interface is probably giving you the selection. <laughs> you can turn it off so that the selection always stays one color, but it's still not in the default color. So you have to go to the user and change that. Once you change that, mm -hmm. then, it, then it should work. So. We just have yeah, I mean, we like it because I think more of it's visualness, but I don't know yeah. that that's the best choice for one user. I mean, Jamal's got his edge, yeah. edge sharp. Edge sharp. Really likes. Uh, I know Jeff Bishop uh, strongly recommends Ultra Edit. A lot of people like Ultra Edit because it's got a lot of, it's very, very uh, speech friendly. It's got a lot of options and things like that. So that settings dialog for the scripts, how's that, how's that uh, work? Does that just... Is it dynamically constructed from properties they expose, or does it just call them methods you can put up your own dialog? 
we get into that? No. Well, I just showed him like he's right talking about the the, um, the yeah. project or the he just showed us bar for the progress bar yeah. options. So, which all way does that work? Because one of them you're going to have to use your own layout designer, and one one of those ways you wouldn't. So, well, that's the wonderful thing about the Windowized Script UI is that it's all XML based, which is just text. So, uh, with following the guidelines that we have and all the documentation we have and all the different elements that you can use and uh, some, some smarts that our Dialog Builder has built into it, it really doesn't take a whole lot to create a very accessible, okay. a very interactive uh, dialogue just by specifying some XML. So I can go in here and I can, uh, an XML that says button, and I give it some text, and I give it a shortcut, and I give it okay. some different properties, and that button will show up in a dialogue. It's a tabbable button, and I can hit the accelerator to make it do something and all that kind of stuff. Okay. So actually designing the UI is actually very simple to do, um, once you understand the the, uh, the syntax, obviously, it takes a little bit of getting used to. If you're familiar with creating web pages and familiar with HTML, moving to XML is a breeze. It's very easy to understand. So he makes settings for the scripts. Where are the settings stored? The settings are stored typically in an INI file, at least in the one in the GW scripts that we have. We um, what you do after you create, and we probably will go into this a little bit more. But what you do is after you create your XML dialogue, um, you have. Uh, um, a callback in your script that actually monitors um, all the events that happen in your dialogue. So it knows when a button got pressed, it knows when a, a list box item changed, it knows when a tree view node okay. was open. So you suggest your own local variables to accommodate the changes in settings. Right. But so if somebody goes through and say they have you know a whole bunch of these scripts installed and a whole bunch of settings made, can they just back all that up? Or do they have to install and manually configure them each time? You should be able to back them up. I mean, just like uh, just like Windows set files, they go into the user's default directory. Uh, your script would be there. Chances are your INI file would be there. Any other supporting files you have would be there. So if you just backed up your user's default directory, which is what we recommend doing when you're you know when you're moving systems and things like that, yeah. and it should just take all of that with it, regardless of what you've got installed, how you installed them, where you installed them, things like that. Okay. All right. Um, did you want to go with the and then I'll pick up after. Yeah. So how do you know about the keyboard object? How do you know about client information? How do you know about anything that Windowize exposes through scripting? You do that through the Windowize scripting manual. Just like the regular Windowize help, uh, the regular Windowize manual, the Windowize scripting manual is available in the Windowize help menu. So in Windowize, you do it all in H for help. Narrow down once. Sorry? It's HTML help. That's great. It is. This is the uh, the scripting manual is in a CHM, just like the regular Windows uh, Windowized manual. So this provides a very rich environment where we can, um, when you're reading through the information about an object, if we reference another object, it'll be a link, so you can jump right to that other object and read information about it. You also have the search tab where you can search through the entire uh, scripting manual. If you know the name of an object, you want to see everywhere it's used, you can search for it. Um, there's also an index which gives you access to uh, a few of the uh, objects directly. But the contents of the scripting manual are um, pretty easy to understand. We have an introduction which uh, goes through kind of what we just did. goes through the simple steps of choosing an editor down to packaging and distributing a script. Um, so each of those sections under an introduction will give you a, a very good overview of how to get started with Windowized scripting. 
The next section after an introduction is the windowize object model. This is the meat of the windowize scripting documentation. It uh, contains a reference to every single object that windowize has. And if those objects have properties, those properties are listed. If those objects have methods, the methods are listed. If those objects have events, the events are listed. And uh, they're all documented as detailed as possible. So you can arrow down through this tree view. You get to the windowize object model, you open that up, you get to objects, you open that up. The first object that we document is called an accessible object, which has to deal with MSAA. Um, all of the objects are listed in alphabetical order, so they're very easy to get to what you want. Um, the properties, try to list them in alphabetical order. Sometimes they're listed in logical order instead. But um, once you find a, a property that you're interested in, you just press enter on that. You press F6 to load that information into the browse mode buffer. You have several links at the top that allow you to uh, navigate within where you just came from. It gives you like a breadcrumb view of how you got to where you are. So I opened up the child ID property of the accessible object. And under the navigation, I see windowize object model, objects, accessible, properties. So it tells me how I got to the property I'm interested in. That's really helpful if you are searching for something. You come across a property that you're interested in, but you don't quite exactly know where it came from. You can look at that navigation and find the breadcrumbs back to the main object that that property came from. Um, all of the properties provide uh, the syntax of how to use them. Um, if it's a method, it will show you what parameters are required for that method. Sometimes properties take parameters as well, and uh, those are also documented wherever necessary. Um, the events also have parameters, and those are all documented. The um, parameters uh, try to be as detailed as possible as to what type they are, whether they're a string, whether they're a number, uh, what uh, their purpose is. And we try to give examples of, in many places as we can on how to actually use them. This documentation needs much more examples, many more examples, and that's something that uh, we're continuing to work on. And uh, the other thing we have in the uh, documentation uh, after objects is enumerations. These are constants. These are things you can use uh, um, names and, uh, for variables rather than values. Like if uh, accessible selection, for example, has uh, a, one of the uh, values that you can use in an accessible selection is 16. Well, how would you ever remember that you needed to use 16 in a specific place? So what we've done is we've assigned those values to names or constants. So you can use those constants or enumerations anywhere that uh, those values are required. So it's much easier to remember. And the, o the other thing about using those names, the other thing that's important, is because those values could change in the future. It's not likely, but it's possible that in a future version of window eyes, we might change the value. If you hard-coded that value into your script, and we change it in the future, that could uh, mess up your script. But if you use the name of that, so of that value, if you use the enum name, then you're always guaranteed that, um, that it'll do what you want. So those objects and uh, enumerations are all listed under the object model. And then the last section of the uh, Windowize scripting manual talks about the, um, the custom user interface, the XML interface. It talks about all of the, uh, all of the elements. And uh, XML dialogs support, I mean, they're very rich dialogs. Buttons, checkboxes, combo boxes, edit boxes, list boxes, list views, uh, different things like progress bars, radio buttons, there's so many things that you can do inside of a, of a window-wise dialogue. Very rich and very uh, very customizable. And then the last part is uh, a few samples of how that uh, those dialogues are actually created. So you have a few XML samples that you can look at and get an idea 
of the layout uh, of those dialogues. And you can see how easy it is for someone to open up a text editor and just uh, and create a dialogue without having to have a uh, you know some sort of form designer like Visual Basic has, where you're trying to move buttons around, and get them in the right position, worried about whether they overlap or whether they're off the dialogue, and all those kinds of things. So it's a, a really neat way to create dialogues. And that's documentation. But you can also get to uh, other uh, resources on Script Central. There's a developer resources page which um, actually links to this documentation as well as some other resources for learning VBScript and learning um, object-oriented programming. Um, but you can also get to the, uh, I mentioned earlier, you can get to the uh, Script Central forum discussions there. You can subscribe to the GW scripting list. So you have a lot of resources at, at your fingertips when it comes to sitting down and working with scripts. And um, during our break, Jeremy apologized for asking questions, which was a little bit <laughs> ridiculous. That's the best way to learn. If you have questions, don't hesitate to ask. This is new to everyone. It's even new to us sometimes. So if you have questions about what's going on, regardless of how silly you think they might be, make sure to ask them, whether you ask them to us directly, whether you do it on the scripting list, however you do it, make sure you ask your questions so you can get an answer so that you can learn, because that's the whole goal. Okay. I'll let Aaron take a little break. Um, one thing I wanted to do while we're in that manual, I don't, we didn't actually look at anything specific. Um, we're going to be talking about some different objects and dealing with different objects and things like that. One of them specifically, which is obviously very important in a Windows operating system, is the window object. So if you had the help open and you go to the window object, you'll see that there are, there are properties. Most objects are going to have properties, methods, and events. Not all of them, but most of them have all three of those. So if I go to the window object and I open it up, I'll see those three nodes. If I look in the properties, I'll see all sorts of things like... Um, uh, what's, well, I want to get some obvious ones here first. Um, the name, the uh, class name, the style, the title, whether it's visible, what type of window it is, is it an overlap? Um, what's its module name that it's associated with? Um, what's the field name for this particular window if it has one? Give me all the direct children uh, as windows, as a window collection, all the direct children, which mean one, uh, one layer down, all my children, in other words, only my children, not my grandchildren below. Um, uh, the client area, the, uh, all the children, whether, not just direct children, but all the children of it. If there's a carrot, I can get the carrot within it. Is it always on top? Is, is the attribute of that window set to always on top, or I can make it always on top? Um, or get an accessible, an MSA accessible to that particular thing. All these are different properties of a window. So once I have a window object, I can do all of these things. I can query all this information. I can get the handle, the uh, handle that Windows gives it, or whatever. All of that is within the properties of that, and we're going to be playing with a bunch of those. Then also there are several methods underneath a window object. For example, I can get um, all the clips, which are all the graphics and text that are within that window that I have. I can close the window. I can get a control object, which allows me to do even more things. It, it get down to a specific edit box, I can deal with the contents of the edit box. So if it's a list view, I can deal with the list view and as a list view. Get very specific to the type of control window that it is. I can set it to focus. I can post a message to it. I can send a message, a window message, to that particular window. I can cause it to be redrawn. I can get its window rectangle, all of, and several more things. I can make it active. All those are methods that I can do with that particular window. And again, it's organized in a very object-oriented method, where I go to window, I look at its methods, its objects. It's all right there. It makes perfect sense of how we get to that information. And then there are events, and there's a billion events that uh, a window can have. I can s 
have an event fire on on child field name, which means any time a child of this window is asking window eyes for a field name, your script will get called. Your script can give it a field name or it can say, no, window eyes, do your default action for it or whatever. When the window gets focused or when the window loses focus, which we call blur. So on blur, when the window loses focus, I would get it. Or on create, when the window's created, or on close, when the window's closed, or on um, activate, all these different things. There's a, several of those different events all dealing with that particular window object. That's just one object that we're looking at. And again, there's a, many, many objects, and they all have all these different things you can deal with them. Window being the most popular, and we're going to deal with some of those things. So I just wanted to kind of highlight that. But this is a great resource. This has everything. Aaron and I, even though we do scripting quite a bit, especially Aaron, we, we don't remember all this. There's no way you're going to remember all of this stuff. But it's very easy and intuitive to find the information that you want through this documentation. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about is with COM Automation, the way that it's derived, If I typically COM Automation application, if it wants to talk to a COM object that's out there, you have to connect to that COM object and you then get back an application object for that COM object. And then you deal with that COM object through that application object. You'll notice though when we did VB Script, you never saw the word application anywhere. When he did speak, hello world, it was just speak. It didn't say application.speak or anything like that. Um, and the reason for that is because on embedded scripts, window eyes automatically, because we're the hosting environment for that script, we automatically give this embedded script, and this is only embedded, not external, but embedded scripts automatically get an application object, they automatically get a speech object, and they automatically get a scripts object. Those are three objects you're going to find documented in the manual. But those three are handed to you as a free gift, and you can just deal with them. So when, you, we, when we did speak dot, or speak in quotes hello world, actually that's speech dot speak hello world. And you could have typed it out that way, but we automatically gave you that speech object so you didn't have to type it out. And some of the other things like, um, like when you did keyboard, keyboard dot register hotkey, keyboard, that's not given to you. Keyboard is an object. How did that, where did that come from? It's actually application dot keyboard dot register hotkey. That concludes this edition of Main Menu. We trust you've enjoyed the program. On behalf of Jeff Bishop and the entire Main Menu team, I'm Jamie Pauls wishing you and yours a great week.